Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, welcome to this gorgeous uh, building, the Institute for Government. I hope you've all managed to get yourself a decent lunch just before Armageddon. Uh, we're stocking up if you can. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. This is part of an ongoing collaboration between the UK and a changing Europe and the Institute for Government. My name is Arnon Menon, and I direct the UK and a changing Europe. And I'm glad that we've got a fantastic panel here. Uh, to talk about the Foreign Office and British Foreign Policy. To my left, we've got Simon MacDonald, who is uh, Permanent Undersecretary at the Foreign Office and Head of the Diplomatic Service. He's been posted all over. Postings include Jeddah, Riyadh, Washington. He was the British Ambassador in Berlin uh, and then worked, I think, in number 10 prior to taking up his current role. Uh, left of uh, Simon is Bromley Maddox. <laughs> Uh, of these parts, director of the Institute for Government, formerly uh, editor of Prospect, and before that, chief foreign correspondent at the Times. I remember, Bronwyn, looking forward to your uh, uh, columns on foreign policy, and I, I very much miss them. However, we have Gideon to fill that hole now. Gideon is the chief foreign affairs columnist at the Financial Times. Uh, I'm sure you're all very, very familiar with his regular column. I've got one story to tell about Gideon, which I remember when you were appointed, Gideon, a friend of mine said, there we go, you see, the FT appointing Eurosceptics. This is awful, which is a nice sign of how far the world has moved uh, <laughs> since you started in your current role. The way this is going to work is Simon's going to speak for about 10 minutes. Uh, Bronwyn and then Gideon are going to respond. Then we might have a, bright, uh, a brief conversation, and I'll throw it open to you for questions. So, Simon, over to you. Thank you, Anna. <clears throat> uh, I'm afraid I did not have lunch, but that's my tough luck. Um, uh, and as I look across the audience, I see some of the people whose photographs are on the wall of my outer office. Uh, so if I did not know already, it's on the record. I am doubly incentivized to behave. <coughs> Sorry. <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about... Um, British foreign policy after Brexit. Uh, for the purposes of what I say, I assume that on the 29th of March next year, the United Kingdom leaves the European Union. Uh, the first of my four remarks is that this departure will not signal a diminution uh, in British overseas ambition. Uh, the United Kingdom is a member of more than 80 uh, international organizations, uh, we are leaving two of those, um, the EU and Euratom, uh, but we will remain active uh, in the others. Uh, indeed, because uh, we are leaving the European Union, I expect uh, more uh, action uh, in other international organisations, uh, because one fact that will not change is that we are a medium-sized country, and most of what we want to do on the international stage we can only achieve with partners. Uh, second uh, observation. Um, we uh, are conscious uh, that outside the European Union, outside our biggest regional club, it is going to be more difficult to achieve what we want. So we're going to work, have to work harder. Uh, and not only uh, will we work harder, but we have got some more resource now uh, to do that. So this spring, the Treasury has given us more resource in a couple of pots, uh, and there is prospect of uh, some more later. Uh, so we have £30 million extra in this financial year for Brexit work, 
uh, and we have £45 million for Global Britain work in this financial year and £45 million in the next financial year. And the prospect of extra uh, might come through our Africa strategy. Uh, you may have spotted that for the last couple of years we have had a joint minister for Africa in both the Foreign Office and in DFID. And one of the consequences of that is that one person has been able to look at the totality of our Africa effort, uh, which includes more than £4 billion per year in official development assistance. Uh, very little of that is spent on the political side, so a shift of only 1% or so would allow us to beef up what we do in Africa. This is not yet agreed, but that is our plan. Um, third remark is that uh, other configurations on the international stage are going to matter more to the UK in future. So, as already said, we are in lots of clubs, uh, but we are going to pick and choose, depending on uh, the subject matter, uh, which to emphasise. Uh, but I expect in the next period that uh, the uh, Security Council of the United Nations will be even more important for the United Kingdom and the G7 and G20. Uh, so we will need to have different forums for different subjects. There will be quite a lot, curiously, of variable geometry, uh, which we've heard constantly in an EU context. I think that is how we are going to approach the wider international challenge. Uh, my fourth remark is, is how we do overseas as a country and government. Uh, in the last few years, uh, the number of players on the international pitch has increased in the United Kingdom. Uh, I think this uh, began uh, with the creation of DFID in 1997, uh, and this was accelerated on the 13th of July 2016 when Theresa May became Prime Minister when she created two new departments of state in uh, the Department for Exiting the European Union and the Department for International Trade. Uh, looking ahead, uh, I think this um, uh, will continue with the exception of DEXU, uh, where I think the clue is in the department's name. And so when the task is done, I expect those uh, resources to be redistributed around Whitehall. This is a conversation that is just beginning, um, but the Foreign Office will be making a claim on quite a chunk of uh, Dexu's work, particularly with engaging uh, other European countries. Uh, so I foresee that the division of spoils will be between several players. Um, I foresee the recreation of a chunky secretariat in the Cabinet Office, uh, but some will come to the FCO and some will go uh, to the Treasury. Uh, the other players I see remaining on the pitch, uh, but we will need a clear division of labour uh, between DFID, DIT and the Foreign Office, and we are all going to have to work in close harmony, uh, because, as already said, the task will be more difficult when we are doing it by ourselves, so unnecessary tension or friction within our own system uh, would just be indulgent. That's my opening pitch. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And Simon's taken us 
across both the, the, the foreign policy after Brexit as well as the narrow subject of the title, the Foreign Office after Brexit. Um, so I'll respond on, on, on both and perhaps say some of the things that Simon can't say. Um, it seems to me going back, looking over the past 15 years, it has been a difficult time for the Foreign Office. Uh, it has been marginalised repeatedly uh, by a series of prime ministers and other ministers who have wanted to uh, either create new departments, for example, DFID, um, or allocate some of the things the Foreign Office once did, uh, for example, the MOD during the uh, Iraq and Afghan wars, um, or to take some of the uh, close relationships that the Foreign Office once <coughs> held uh, close to itself, for example, with the United States and with European leaders uh, into number 10. And, and we've seen you know, a long history of, of, of uh, prime ministers doing more and more of that themselves. And it's been, you know, in some ways, a difficult 15 years of foreign policy. Two wars that didn't go to plan, if I can put it that way. Um, and then the complications of the uh, financial crisis on top uh, and the strains on national finances. But the Foreign Office, as um, Simon has gently alluded to, and as the as parliamentary committees have said really very explicitly, has uh, had a very uh, severe pressure on funding uh, going back some years. And I think that, combined with uh, this dispersal of some of its role around Whitehall, um, has left it weakened. Um, and I think that is very much uh, uh, a weakness um, of government, because we have lost, during that, some of the expertise that the Foreign Office built up over the, uh, over the years. And when it came to some of the European negotiations, we've seen that some of the you know, deep experience in dealing with other European capitals was perhaps not um, uh, either uh, as much there or as much integrated into government thinking as it could have been. We've seen it in other areas as well, for example, Russia, where we now are very much aware of the need uh, for a lot of um, thinking and a lot of intelligence and a lot of contacts, in, indeed, uh, with Russia and about Russia, um, but uh, where that has uh, also been under pressure for some years. So I, I think uh, Simon and his colleagues have fought a um, delicate and difficult battle within Whitehall, and I you know, regret that the Foreign Office has come under such pressure in that time. Where do we go from here? Um, Clarity of roles is certainly something to ask for, but I think the, you know, some of this starts with the money, and uh, the, the FCO has got a little bit more, um, probably uh, is going to need more on top of that again. But again, it needs to be driven by what we're doing. And so let me come to the point that Simon started with. First, what is Britain's foreign policy going to be after Brexit? We haven't had an awful lot on this from the government yet. Um, we've had, obviously, a great deal of wrangling about what our relations with Europe are going to be, still unclear. I think uh, it's something of a disappointment that Europe, uh, particularly France, has reacted in such a chilly way to even the overtures on security. Um, but it really hasn't left the bandwidth yet for us to get a sense of what our wider foreign policy is going to be, what kind of country we want to be. It's obviously a difficult time to play the card of close relations with the United States because of the sheer unpredictability of, of that relationship, but that's clearly going to have to be part of it. But I think more than that, we really have to decide whether, but we, I also mean the elected government of the day, um, whether we want an active role in the Middle East, uh, whether or not that means military involvement. My sense is there is absolutely no public appetite for that. 
um, but the uh, turmoil in that region is really at our doors in, in all kinds of ways. Uh, whether we want to, uh, how we're going to contribute intelligence on Russia and other countries to the world, what we do about development more widely. Simon's talked about Africa and the shared minister there. And, you know, we, we're talking at a, a still a warm but, but, but troubled time in the whole thinking about development, what we can do to help another country develop. Um, people's thinking about this has got less and less certain over the, the past decades, uh, except that good government matters, and if you give money without that there, uh, yeah, you, you, may, you may waste it all. So there is a lot of thinking to be done. Uh, I, I wish we could get a clearer statement from the government uh, about how ambitious Britain wants to be, and that would help uh, clarify the SEO's role. Thanks. <clears throat> well, then, picking right up from where Bronwyn left off, um, I, it does strike me, certainly as somebody who goes, as, as we all do, quite a lot to Washington, that there's a, it, been a big gap between the way the British and the Americans do foreign policy. The Americans almost addicted to this idea of rethinking things from first principles. No administration is complete without a new doctrine, a Bush doctrine, a Carter doctrine, whatever. The British don't really do that. They, 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 they tend to just to sort of keep going um, without thinking very <coughs> deeply about do we want to rethink our whole strategy. And that was summed up for me... Um, by a minister in one of Blair's governments who said to me when he came in as a relatively junior minister in the Foreign Office, he was a bit surprised that at no point did anybody sit him down and say, well, look, this is what we're trying to achieve in the world. It was just like, sort of, minister, you're meeting Mr. X on sort of Wednesday at two, and here's your diary, get on with it. Um, but if there ever was a need or an opportunity uh, to think about Britain's role in the world, well, obviously, uh, this is the moment uh, with us leaving the EU uh, However, it's both the best and the worst time to do it because the government has come up with a slogan, Global Britain, but we really won't be able to define the global uh, nature of Britain's role until we know the nature of the relationship with the EU, which has yet to be defined. Do we stay in the customs union or not? That obviously has huge implications for whether we can negotiate trade deals. And more broadly, how friendly or acrimonious is the relationship with the EU after, after Brexit? Are we kind of in a slipstream with very like-minded European partners, or are we left in quite a scratchy relationship with them? That will be kind of crucial to deciding what, what you then do uh, about global Britain. But I think having said that, obviously the thinking's got to begin uh, now. Um, an idea that um, I think grows out of, of the very radical changes happening in the United States, which I think are almost as profound in their implications for Britain as, as, as Brexit, um, are that, is that Britain has to try to, as Simon said, identify partners. And Simon also used the, the phrase middle-sized power. And I think we're obviously week to week trying to figure out what Donald Trump is doing and what it all means. But it seems to me that... The US, China, Russia are all tempted to move back towards power politics where they use their sheer size, or in Russia's case, the possession of nuclear weapons and a willingness to break the rules, to um, break out of the rules-based order and just see whether they can muscle their way to some, uh, some outcome that they want. I think that's the philosophy behind what Trump is doing on trade. That's clearly a dangerous world for the UK and for all middle-sized powers which don't have that option open to them, which therefore need a kind of rules-based order, and will need it, in Britain's case, even more if we're relying on the World Trade Organization, just as the world trade system is being put under unprecedented pressure by the United States. So I think that means trying to identify, unfortunately there are quite a few middle-sized powers who look at the world in the same way, 
who are similarly uh, you know, democracies, quite affluent democracies that rely on a rules-based order. There are two just across the channel in, in, in the UK and France, France and Germany. And I think they might be able to be persuaded to work quite closely bilaterally with Britain, not simply through the EU, although that would be first call, but also Canada, Australia, um, the, possibly South Korea, Japan, certainly. So you'd want initially to start with quite a small group, but I think these are countries that suddenly find in this new world that they have quite common interests in, in, in economics and security, in, even in things like continuing to push a human rights agenda at a time when I think the Trump administration is going to be doing much less of that. So that middle powers thing is one option to look at. Another, I think, is uh, the Commonwealth. Uh, now, I, I find myself surprised to say that because I've been one of those people who tend to say, hey, look, you know, forget it, it's an idea of the past. Um, but I was, I was struck on a recent trip to India by, I mean, not, not all Indians are interested in it, but a couple of the uh, kind of strategic thinkers in Delhi said, you know, there is something we could do with that because it fits with their concerns about a rising China. They see Belt and Road gradually encircling India, they see Chinese influence advancing across Central Asia and into Africa. They're looking for an alternative network to Belt and Road, which they can push back against. And here's the Commonwealth, you know, which has a big presence in Africa, which has a presence across Southeast Asia. Um, but I think if Britain is to really try to make that work, maybe they should do more to, to, to try and bring India on board. Maybe you could even look at uh, moving the Commonwealth Secretariat to Delhi or splitting it because I think that would give India a big stake in this p potential new organization. So those are the kinds of, uh, you know, just beginnings of the kinds of ideas that we're going to have to, I think, put on the table as we uh, attempt to navigate our way in this new world. So is there anything you've heard you want to come back on immediately? Uh, a couple of things. One on, on the Commonwealth, yes. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things that happened at the summit in April in London was uh, the attendance. Uh, I think the pulling power of Queen Elizabeth II had a lot to do with that. But also, as Gideon says, uh, the Commonwealth is one of the biggest clubs that India belongs to that China does not. And so I think one reason why the Prime Minister of India came to the summit for the first time in nine years uh, was that they are <coughs> interested for that reason. Um, just as a footnote on uh, imaginative ideas of binding India in, we tried that with an Indian Secretary General uh, before Baroness Scotland, and so that, that, well, you see the success. Um, uh, uh, second, on the medium powers, um, I agree with that. I think um, it is also true that around the world, even though we have the European Union and in Europe we are very conscious all the time of the European Union, uh, with many partners further afield, they still think of Europe in terms of the main European powers. So Germany, France and the United Kingdom. And so I think in many places, well that wouldn't be a particularly shocking thought. Uh, I think we in the UK should be more open to including the EAS in that group. I think it would make it easier for France and Germany to uh, be a bit more overt about trilateral cooperation if the EAS were also there. Uh, but that's just an idea that is not policy. I think if I heard you right in your initial remarks, you said Brexit will make the business of foreign policy harder. And I wonder if I could try and draw out of you in what particular ways it will. 
Well, for the last 45 years, we've been a member of a big, pretty coherent regional club uh, and one of the three biggest players in that club. And that stops on the 29th of March next year. Uh, so I think you know, that that will certainly make everything that where the uh, EU has led, particularly around trade, more difficult for the United Kingdom, just harder work. Um, we will make our way by ourselves in the WTO, as uh, Gideon and Bronwyn say. You know, the, the, the rules-based system is even more important uh, for us as a, uh, on the other side. Um, we will be making it our way as a country of 65 million people rather than as a, a block of more than half a billion. So I, just, I think maths plays a, a, a significant part. But just Bronwyn. I was going to say, listening to that, one of the central questions to me is whether trade comes to dominate everything, that is, that, um, to dominate foreign policy, that is, whether because we need trade relationships, we bend everything around that, whether defence or other alliances or whatever. But as both you and Gideon were saying, the, the future trading relationship with the EU is the key starting point, and right now we don't know what that will be, and it could be quite close. But if, 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 I, if I were to move this beyond trade, though, just in terms of more traditional foreign policy, where, where are the losses that we might suffer from Brexit? Um, I, <laughs> I think every place where you're used to being part of regional engagement with a third country, we're just by ourselves. But, as already said, a lot of the world never really looked at the United Kingdom in foreign policy terms principally as part of the European Union. So I spent a lot of my career in the Middle East and you know, they've dealt with the UK as the UK. Uh, and dealt with other European countries, principally bilaterally. The, the, you know, the, the Brussels institutions did not feature large in our relations, either with Saudi Arabia or with Israel, with the two countries uh, where I served. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's not, I think, an impossible task, but I absolutely agree uh, that we have to make some choices that um, when you're part of a bigger club with bigger resources, you can spread yourself more plausibly across the whole world, we will have to prioritise. Uh, we talk a lot about prioritisation. I think EU exit confronts us with an unavoidable task. Did you want to...? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, and I think that that uh, is one of the, the problems with the Global Britain vision, because there is a resource question which wasn't necessarily addressed by the Brexiters who have this idea that we can now go out into the world, but actually we're probably going to have to do a lot more diplomacy within the EU itself because we're going to have a whole bunch of bilateral relationships to tend to, and we're also going to be trying to uh, build up relationships with, um, well, basically everyone, except we can't because we'll have to pick and choose for reasons yeah. that Simon lays out. But I need to endorse what Gideon's just said about starting in Europe. Um, especially in this century, we've been doing more and more through Brussels. So across the European Union, where we have embassies in all member states, they are, with the exception of France and Germany, smaller than they used to be, and most of them have more junior ambassadors than they used to have. 
Uh, and so one reason we've got <coughs> some Brexit, uh, you know, money labelled Brexit, is that we need to beef up what we are doing in Sweden uh, and you know, the rest of the European Union. I, I completely agree with that, I must say. As I said at the beginning, I think it has been a, a loss and a kind of a atrophy of that. And um, I'd be surprised if the money that you've been given is enough to uh, achieve what you've uh, described, but we, we can come back to that. Um, but I was struck by your point on the Middle East, um, because there, there I think you, you really do have a, a point that if you think of the countries we've dealt with, not just uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia, but uh, in different ways, the Iran deal and the Iraq uh, invasion as well, we weren't dealing with them as part of the EU. Iran a bit, but it, it was as part of the six. Yeah. So. On, on global Britain, as a, I mean, as a diplomat, <coughs> does this feel substantively new to you? Was it just a case of old wine and new bottles? Is it just another label for keeping on doing the same things before with, yeah. a, with a new logo? Um, uh, I think uh, there clearly have been shortcomings with the label uh, because other people are in charge of interpretation and the two widest interpretations I think are A, that global Britain uh, was code for turning our back on Europe. Uh, or B, that global Britain was code for Empire 2.0. So neither of these is true. I don't think either of them was ever uh, in the head of the Foreign Secretary as he coined the phrase, but that's how it was taken out there. I think for us, global Britain is about being present, uh, engaged and effective uh, around the whole world. Uh, within that, we have to make choices, we, although we we have a network of 274 posts and we are going to expand that. A lot of it is very, very small uh, that I have uh, nearly half my posts that have one or zero UK-based members of staff. So, you know, the, it's, uh, it, presence can be presence and not much else. But we've learned uh, that if you are not present, you, you know, you lose your eyes and ears and any chance of uh, influence. Um, and we saw uh, uh, some of that with the ICJ, ICJ vote last year, uh, that some places thought we'd lost interest, and so uh, departed company. Do either of you want to come back on Global Britain for us? Well, it's, it's not bad as these slogans say, <coughs> but it clearly is a slogan saying that we're here to talk to your trade department. It's better than we are a medium-sized power, which is not one of the great rallying cries of history. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it depends what we make of it down the, down the, down the years. I think it's, you know, it's yeah. use, usefully vacuous as it is. <laughs> but I wonder whether, I mean, one, one uh, aspect that we haven't really discussed uh, is the extent to which Britain uh, is actually more vulnerable outside the EU. And you look at uh, the intensification of um, the, uh, you know, the deterioration in the relationship with Russia. And actually, that was kind of encouraging how the EU rallied around, but I'm sure the Russians will be back and will try to sort of pick, pick apart that unity. There'll be other tests whether the European Union will necessarily always do that, particularly given the changes that you now see in Italy. Uh, Austria's another country. Putin's there, I think, tomorrow. Uh, so that that European Union toughness towards Russia might not... Uh, survive for very long and I think that we could be looking at quite a long-term deterioration in the British-Russian relationship. 
Um, well, it's been going on for a long time. Yeah. I mean, think about it. You know, a decade. Oh, sure, but, but, but it's going to be, but it's going to be different yeah. outside the EU. Is what I'm saying. I mean, we, we, it's it's harder to, to we did it this time, but I think it's harder to assume that you'll get. Do you think I, I see that point, but I point out that the reaction after Salisbury was a global reaction. Yeah. So although, of course, the EU was the core of that, uh, it wasn't the whole of that. And even within the EU, no, was, there was, was, was differentiation. It was encouraging. I just, but I, I just think we can't assume it's always going to be like that. I mean, I, and I think that you know another potential vulnerability. Uh, is the UN Security Council seat? Uh, there were, fortunately, it's almost it's even harder to agree on UN reform than on EU reform. So that kind of inertia may prevent uh, that seat being picked off. But I think that certainly you hear more discussion of it now. Um, I, think, I, th I think that is a good example of what we might lose. Uh, the Russian one, to me, the European reactions have. Russia's been doing a good job for ten years of trying to splinter uh, different bits of European opinion against each other and there are different oh sure there. but i just think that you know we're now in a phase yeah. where actually britain's relations with russia are sort of dramatically worse than they yeah. for some time but i would one thing on russia and one thing on the um un uh, on russia as bronwyn says this has been going on a long time uh, that at least since 2006-7, with the uh, killing of Litvinenko and the presentation of the file against Lugovoy, we've had a scratchy relationship. And all the measures that Gordon Brown in his first month as Prime Minister put in place mm. against Russia remain in place because mm. the relationship has not had an uptick uh, since. And now it's gone worse, as you say. Uh, but it's not just the UK. I think one reason why there was such um, a, a, a general reaction was that other countries took this chance to look at what was happening to them, yeah. uh, courtesy of Moscow. And Russia has been up to its uh, agenda across the world. And so it was a chance for all countries to say enough. Uh, and on the UN, I think uh, one, the, the charter protects us. It's uh, very difficult uh, to change the rules. I can see no chance that the UK changing its relationship with the <coughs> continent will provoke a general reform of the United Nations. Um, but uh, so I don't take that uh, particularly seriously. But the key point for us is that we uh, continue to fulfill the obligations of uh, a, a permanent member of the Security Council. So we always send our very best diplomats uh, to New York, and the UK tries uh, to play a constructive role, moving dossier along, um, including you know, things that don't get a huge amount of publicity uh, in uh, the UK or even around the international community. Uh, most of the Security Council's agenda is in Africa, uh, and where you know we're doing our bit. Okay, I'm going to throw it open for questions and comments now. Can I just ask you, one, to introduce yourself, two, to be brief, and three, to bear in mind that Simon is a civil servant and not a politician, <laughs> lest you be tempted to think otherwise. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a microphone coming uh, Norman Strauss. I find the kaleidoscopic view and the sort of touching upon what in business be strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, absolutely the starting point. And I see clearly that the diplomatic service 
has to maintain diplomatic relationships. What I don't understand is where the guiding strategy and purpose that directs focus, prioritization, and above all, not just counterpunching in the relationships and committees that one goes to, but actually generating an original strategic purpose which might actually get people wanting to talk to the UK again. Should we take the one at a time for the moment and see how we go? Since, yeah, I mean, I don't know whether Simon's role, as you pointed out, as a civil servant, makes that hard to answer, but I mean, I think a lot of it comes uh, from the projection for, of your political leader. I mean, I think one of the reasons there's a lot of interest in France at the moment is that Macron is quite a dynamic guy who's uh, very charismatic and who has the confidence to go around saying, this is what France thinks, and clearly believing that it matters and that people should listen, and that, in a sense creates something. I mean, now he, of course, he could have a few major setbacks and some of the gloss could come off him. But at the moment, I think Britain's political leadership is so inward focused uh, and so wrapped up in Brexit that they're not yet in a position to, to project that kind of confidence and outward looking nature. Maybe that will happen in a post-Brexit era. Do you want to? I think what... Um British governments throughout history have tried to do is pretty consistent, I mean, to uh, protect our citizens, to uh, promote our prosperity, to project our influence. And different governments put the emphasis in different places over the years. Uh, and as Gideon says, it's up for grabs next year. I, I, I think once the government manages to lift its head from Brexit, it will find you know, the bigger words to put to this, uh, which aren't hard, that it's a, a good country to do alliances with, a great uh, place to live and work, um, and, uh, and so on. But uh, uh, Brexit is so consuming at the moment of energies and attentions that you can feel that it's, it's sort of um, shrinking people's vocabulary. Uh, thank you. Carol Walker. Um, you talked about uh, the fact that foreign policy will be more difficult after Brexit. I wonder whether you would accept that there are many other countries outside the EU who see Britain very much or deal with Britain very much as one of those three major powers in the EU and that thus they will see us as less important after Brexit. And if I may also, I wonder how concerned you are that the whole process of Brexit in itself, which, as Bronwyn was saying, is absorbing so much focus at the moment, which is looking, um, how should we say, a bit messy, whether that process may in itself damage Britain's global standing. I don't feel tempted, Carol, to comment on the second. Uh, but on the first, um, I think that, uh, as already said, so I'm repeating myself, we are, remain one of the three big European powers, whether we're in the European Union or out of the European Union. Um, that traveling in uh, Africa, in East Asia, in Latin America, uh, that is how we have been treated even during our membership. So I think that in many parts of the world that the wiring diagram won't be um, uh, 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 fundamentally significant. Now, everyone on that row wants to ask a question. <laughs> so what I suggest is we take the two gentlemen on that row together 
and it gives you time to prepare for David Hannay's question <laughs> Thank you very much. I'll, I'll just make a couple of points very briefly. My name is Bob Seeley. I'm the newish Member of Parliament for the Isle of Wight and I sit on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Um, I just want to nail a couple... By the way, if we're interested in Russian warfare, I've actually just published through the Henry Jackson Society a definition of Russian warfare. It's out today and we have a meeting in Parliament at 6 o'clock, so everyone's welcome. Can I just ask two questions? Firstly to Sir Simon and then secondly to Gideon. Sir Simon, I just get so wound up when I hear this medium-sized power stuff. I'm not pretending for one second that Britain is some great power still and all this sort of malarkey. We are not a superpower. China and America are the superpowers. Below that, there are a series of great powers. And if you define power, and you call Russia a great power purely because of its nuclear destructive power, that is missing a trick in the modern world because we are in many ways the second most powerful nation on earth in terms of our <coughs> soft power. So can we please nail this sort of wary little country routine? I don't think it's going to help us post-Brexit. Secondly, thoughts please on that. Secondly, to Gideon, um, theory and the basis of theory, and now is a good time to think about what our nation stands for. And please don't all laugh, but because you haven't got time to write what global Britain is, I'm thinking of saying to Boris, let me write our foreign policy manifesto for the next couple of years. So I'm very keen to do this work. Should we be going back to basics? Should we be thinking, are we a Hamiltonian state, a Jacksonian state? And looking, for example, at the sort of US foreign policy theory and going back to these fundamental beliefs and what would you say they are? Thank you. Thank you. I'm Ben Glaze from the Daily Mirror. Um, so, Simon, you mentioned the problems with the messaging around global Britain. I'm just wondering what you think the real consequences of that have been, both with um, non-EU countries and EU countries. Okay. Uh, Mr. Seeley, I don't think medium-sized is small. I mean, we are, a, uh, you know, looking at the league table in the top half dozen for the size of the economy, the size of our armed forces, our aid De uh, development assistance is uh, in the top three. Uh, so we are of weight and consequence, but the top two are way ahead. So it's that, it's that relative thing that I think um, it, we need to be honest about because the United States and China are way ahead of, of, of everybody else. Uh, and on the, the, the Great Britain label, I, I found more consequence within the United Kingdom than around the world. Um, uh, because around the world, I, I found people asking questions rather than making presumptions. Uh, look, I mean, I think you, there's a fine line between uh, confidence and overclaiming. I'm all for being confident and being aware of the, the qualities of this country and the things it has to offer. I think, however, if you, if you travel around the world, uh, as I do, I'm sure you do, I think that there is a general perception now that we're going to have to f try to reverse that Britain has just shot itself in the foot. Um, and I think that if we wander around saying, proclaiming what a great power we are, there's a danger that we'll be greeted with a smirk rather than uh, kind of recognition. So I think you've got to be a bit careful. I think that there is a lot of respect for Britain, uh, in, you know, varies obviously in different places, and an awareness of what it has to offer. But I think there is also a sense that maybe this Brexit vote, uh, is a sign of delusions of grandeur, frankly. And I think we need to combat that. And if we just go around saying, we're back, guys, you know, we're, aren't we marvellous? I don't think it's necessarily going to be helpful, actually. Um, on the, you know, how does one rethink think foreign policy? I think, I, you know, everybody 
I think, well, what you want to do is, is very uh, worthwhile and necessary. I mean, I guess I, if I were doing it, you'd have to start with trying to define national interests because that's a, a phrase that's used a lot. Uh, but I'm not sure we always know what we mean by it. Are we talking about security? I think a lot of people internally would, would think more about things in terms of prosperity, their personal security in terms of like healthcare and pensions rather than the more traditional uh, visions of national security, how do you balance the, those kinds of, of, of things. Um, so I, th I think you've got to start with really quite a, a focused discussion of, well, what, what are we trying to do for the people of this country and then build out from there. So let me say something on the first question, which was about um, how the world will see us. I think we did suffer a drop in reputation uh, on the Brexit vote. People in other countries thinking, why on earth would they do that? We won't suffer a permanent one. I mean, the expectation of many countries, it seems to me, to the extent they're paying attention at all, um, is, is to um, think that we'll manage a fudge, and only if we lose a government, uh, end up with no deal, or end up with a much uh, significantly worse economy, will we have suffered a, a permanent drop in reputation in their eyes. Otherwise, they assume that we and the EU will, will somehow get some kind of fudge through, whether or not that is a... That, that is realistic. On well, what we should aim for, um, you know, I think the world, though, will be looking a lot at one thing and taking that as a proxy uh, for our foreign policy, and that's our immigration policy that we end up with after Brexit. Thank you. David, do you wait for them? <clears throat> uh, David Haney, I'm a member of the International Relations Committee of the House of Lords, which, funnily enough, is looking at this issue too and conducting an inquiry on it now. Um, but just one point about the UN. I agree with Simon totally, uh, but I think what we need to reflect on is that for 20 years after the UN was established, uh, Nationalist China was a permanent member of the Security Council. Uh, I would defy anyone in this room to say anything they did during that period that had any effect on what the Security Council did. So I think that might be a better focus than whether we're likely to lose our seat. But two questions, if I could. Uh, the first one, I was a bit startled when you said, uh, we're not reducing our ambition. Uh, some people might say that our ambition has exceeded our capacity to deliver it by quite a long way for quite a long time. Uh, and to simply ignore the fact that the two props of British foreign policy, the relationship with Europe and the relationship with Washington, have been startlingly uh, changed uh, is probably not the best place to start. But perhaps you could comment on that. I know how difficult it is to say we are actually reducing our ambition. But uh, that it is important. And the second is a rather technical question. Uh, it looks to me from the outside as if we are siloizing our foreign policy quite steadily. The idea of appointing trade commissioners all over the world uh, answerable apparently to a government department called the Department for International Trade um, the, it already exists with the um, international development, and dual hatting is not a durable solution to that. It's a short-term fix to it, but it's not a durable solution to it. Uh, and then there is the Ministry of Defence. Now, I just wonder, who, is, who are all your ambassadors, our ambassadors, going to be receiving their instructions from? Uh, if there's a conflict between doing a trade deal with country A and the way they're treating their citizens in terms of human rights, or the way they're behaving in terms of the rules-based international order, who is going to be issuing those instructions? 
And what is the role of the ambassador going to be when there's a trade commissioner who apparently answers to some completely different minister, but who comes in and out of their country without uh, having to uh, say buy or leave? Well, <laughs> um, I think I try um, uh, to emphasize that harmony is important and in um, uh, the harmonious relationship there is also a need for leadership. And so around the world, the head of mission, the, the ambassador or the high commissioner, I believe, is the person who has the relationship in her or his hands and all the other government players need to uh, tie into that person. Uh, so uh, and as a theoretical model, I think it can and should work, uh, but it means that uh, with our new trade commissioners, uh, they tie into the uh, ambassador or high commissioner in, in the particular territory they are working. Um, I also think that the uh, real life will, will help this, uh, because uh, we've invented trade commissioners, but these are not um, known to other governments, so when there is a particularly difficult Thing with the UK government, I believe their default setting is still going to be, well, get the ambassador in. <coughs> and so, you know, the, the way other people react is part of this. So if it is understood that ambassadors and high commissioners are providing the overall leadership, and when for the really difficult strategic stuff, the other side is still prioritising uh, the ambassador, then I think it can work. Do either of you two want to... I, I, I think there's pressure, as I said, for trade to become the dominant part of any relationship and for other things like aid and other wrinkles to be bent round that. Right, so we've got Tim here in the red jumper. We've got a gentleman here at the front, a gentleman back there, two gentlemen in that section. You see the theme here. If there are any non-gentlemen, <laughs> do uh, go ahead. Sorry, I'm a gentleman. Uh, Tim Bale from um, Queen Mary University of London. Um, I, I take Simon's point about the generally bipartisan nature of British foreign policy over the last few decades, but we now have uh, an extremely polarized government versus opposition uh, in, in this country. So perhaps leaving Sir Simon out of it, because I understand his problems as a civil servant with answering a question like this, if I were to cheaply <coughs> add three words onto the end of this and say, uh, under Jeremy Corbyn, uh, would Bronwyn and Gideon uh, give a, a slightly different answer to the question? It's interesting because they're not they're, uh, as much polarised between, uh, you know, between themselves as they are within their parties. Um, and one of the curiosities of this is that we don't have a leader of the opposition arguing something at this point very, very different from what the government the extent we can discern what the government is saying, uh, very, very, very different on that. On Brexit. On Brexit, on yeah. Foreign on foreign policy, more generally. Um, yes, but there's wrinkles um, there. I, I, and again, it's very hard to get something explicit at this point of, uh, from Labour about relations with the US, about military action, about Russia. Um, these are these are tones, and then and then great great drama attached to the interpretations of those tones. Um, I, I don't know. Gideon, I, I, all I'd say is I, I, I'd pay money to be the fly on the wall at the first Jeremy Corbyn Donald Trump meeting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> fairly extraordinary, but I mean I think to some extent uh, 
you know, Corbyn's traditional anti-Americanism would be a, a much easier fit with the times um, than, uh, than it would have been 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So that in, in a sense, Trump is a bit like the sort of cartoon, swaggering American president that Corbyn has always been kind of projecting onto the White House. But I don't think, you know, so, so, so in that sense, I think he'd oddly feel relatively comfortable with, with that world in the sense that it fits his worldview. However, he'll have to, I think he'll have to start thinking about things he hasn't thought about much, uh, like national security and how does he then adapt to, to that? Some of those questions, unless he's a, a truly uh, even more radical than we think, um, he'll have to start addressing. And it, to, to that extent, obviously, the current direction of uh, the, America, the, the US government of Russia uh, are problematic. I mean, obviously, Corbyn and even more Seamus Milne have traditionally been very sympathetic or more sympathetic than is usual to, to, towards Russia. Whether they'd be able to, so I guess he would attempt to rebuild relations with the Russians, distance himself from the US. What he'd do about NATO would be secondary to what America is doing about NATO, uh, but he'd, again, would be more comfortable than most previous British prime ministers with the idea of a NATO that was changing pretty radically. Um, but I suspect he'd be kind of poorly cut out for this new world of power politics and great man politics. That's not the way he thinks. I mean, I think he thinks in terms of sort of international solidarity and, you know, reaching out to the Latin American left. Now, they may be, may be in for a revival, so, you know, I guess he could rebuild relations with a new Mexican government. I, I think the bite of your question, though, is really on the economics, which we're not discussing here. But if a Corbyn government wanted to do something about um, state aids or about renationalization, uh, all that kind of thing, that having a knock-on effect on the trade relationships would be sort of where I'd look for, a, for it. Uh, Mark Boliat from City of London. I want to follow up a point Sir Simon made about our um, diplomatic work within the European Union post-Brexit. Uh, businesses are already rapidly building up their representational capacity throughout the European Union, including in Brussels, and it seems to me we're going to be in a pretty permanent state of negotiation with the EU, as Switzerland is, mm. um, which always has the, um, uh, the, the, the capacity for more tension. Uh, just some thoughts on just what are we going to need dealing with the EU itself over the next few years, and what are the implications for that, bearing in mind most of these issues will be on trade and on business issues. Um, our mission uh, or representation to the EU has traditionally been one of our biggest in the world and is led by one of only two ambassadors of permanent secretary rank. Uh, these things will continue after the 29th of March next year for the reasons you said. Uh, so uh, it is already clear that uh, we'll have an SMS4 ambassador uh, in the mission. Uh, it will probably get a new name to mark the change, uh, but it will remain one of our biggest and most important missions anywhere in the world. But no specific department? No specific domestic department to handle? No, the, the Foreign Office. Okay. The Foreign Office, right. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Tim Barrow's appointment is one I'm particularly pleased. Yeah. No, I mean, it reminds me of uh, 
I think it was about 18 months before the referendum, late night listening to the radio, and there was Boris Johnson on the radio before he'd come out for one side or the other, and he was <coughs> thinking aloud and said, of course, if we actually leave the European Union, we're actually going to have double the size of our grip. We're not going to, you know, we'll need even more representation to Europe. Uh, well, not something he said much in the campaign, but I think he, he's kind of, he must, well, clearly is aware of it. I think the government, as we were about to point out in a report on, on is Whitehall ready? Question mark. And provide your <laughs> answer, um, uh, which is out very soon. I think they, they you could do with a lot more consultation with business and on on some of these uh, uh, details of the implications that are uh, that are coming. No, I'm storing up a question for Simon. But we can, uh, uh, um, Paul Adamson of eShop Magazine. My question very much builds on on Mark's question, Sir Simon. Um, beyond beefing up representation in Brussels and maybe rebranding it, renaming it. Uh, could you give us some idea of, of how you actually will engage more with the U27 in practical terms? Is wanting to have more civil servants on the ground in a brand new embassy, but what, how will you actually go about trying to influence policy uh, on the ground once we've left the European Union next year? And secondly, since we're all in this together, whether it's business like Mark's Bailiwick and other parts of UK, PLC, but also civil society. Given that we're all in this new world together, do you see any scope for at least exchange of best practice between uh, government and Whitehall on one hand and the private sector and civil society on the other? Thank you. Uh, well, uh, ever since the vote, we've been increasing the heft of uh, our missions in Europe. And there are two things that, um, or three things I can do. One is that uh, uh, the ambassador can be a more senior figure. Um, and uh, as we voted, um, a quarter of our ambassadors to the Euro European Union countries were not in the senior management structure. So relatively junior figures. They changed very quickly, so they are now all in the senior management structure. And um, quite a lot of the grading of the jobs is, it will rise, I predict, in the, uh, in the next uh, few months. Second, we can make them bigger. Uh, so all our uh, uh, embassies in the EU have had some extra UK-based staff in the last two years, and we'll get more. Um, and third, we can give them more uh, programme money to spend. Uh, and we are in the process of doing that. One thing that we have to change quite quickly is to bring in the scholarship program that we run around the world, which we, I think we run very successfully around the world, Chevening, uh, which has grown a lot in uh, the last few years, but does not include um, the countries of the European Union. So that we uh, have to change, and I think we will change that. So there'll be, there'll be more clout. Yeah, we uh, we do, and we um, uh, I, you know we're always trying to do that. But uh, one of um, a particular thing we're looking at is having more secondments both ways. Uh, so more people from the diplomatic service out uh, in uh, business, and uh, people from uh, the private sector in in diplomatic jobs. I uh, think head of mission is an unusual entry uh, grade for somebody coming from outside, but there are plenty of jobs besides head of mission. Yeah, I mean, one, one of the things that people point out as being unique about the EU is the way that interstate relations become somehow domesticated. So, you know, our relations with France and Germany become a matter of domestic policy rather than foreign policy. Do we? Will there be an effort to maintain that post-Brexit? That is to say, have sector, you know, a greater density of contacts between sectoral ministries than is normal, perhaps, in international relations? I think that will be a feature of the successor to OCREP, uh, because, yes, I mean, the policy developed in Brussels will affect 
domestic ministries at least as much as the foreign office. But do you see that in our bilaterals as well with the individual member it states? Already so happens. Okay. It already happens. Do either of you two want to? The, 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 the question, it is relevant. I, mean, I was kind of um, mulling over as Simon was talking. goes right back to your point that uh, the relationship could be close. Um, are you surprised by the, uh, the hard line that the EU has taken on security and on um, participation in things like Galileo? Which isn't pointing yeah, frankly, a, a yeah, frankly yes. Because I, I, you know, I do, do not see it is actually in the continent's strategic interest to be quite that adamantine. But this is still in the middle of a negotiation. So this is not necessarily where we end up. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 my worry is that uh, we might, I'm sure it wasn't Simon's call, but we might have slightly misplayed our hand at a certain point by saying, of course, security cooperation will continue, etc. Et because I think the French just said, great. Uh, and therefore, we don't have to give you anything uh, as part of a quid pro quo. So there's a kind of French version of cake and eat it, which is, well, we, we, we know that you're going to continue with our close security cooperation, so we can therefore be very tough on, on everything else. Because they gave the Prime Minister such a hard time, as she said in the beginning, yeah, it was exactly. a bargaining chip, and yeah, yeah. she had to row back. Yeah, I know, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm James Kidner from Improbable, a technology startup, but a diplomat on secondment there, so you're making the journey that you're encouraging us to do. So. Um, can we talk a little bit about what I would call the human aspect of all this? I can well remember the Foreign Office in late June 2016, <coughs> traumatized, post-traumatic stress. Most people in that institution had worked hard for the European Union, you know, with the European Union for most of their career. And suddenly this vision of a place in the world was fundamentally transformed. How long, and, and I paid tribute to you, Sir Simon, for, dare I say, holding morale as you did in, the, in those difficult times. But how much has it changed now and how, mu how difficult is it for those people who've worked for that institution for many years to see the opportunity that attaches to differentiating, dare I say it, against an institution that's been part of our life for 45 years? Where, in particular, in the values of the United Kingdom, is there a difference between where we stand in the world and where the EU stands? And how difficult is it going to be to make anything of this? Um, if I live to be 100 years old, I will never forget the 24th of June 2016, when it was the, the best attended all-staff meeting ever, and we had 1,100 telephone lines open around the world. Uh, yeah, it was a, a dramatic atmosphere. But we are civil servants. Uh, we work for the government of the day, and we are proud to do that, and we try to defend and promote British interests as best we can. And the importance and intellectual stimulation of that task, I do not think, are in doubt. Uh, and I think that is, is what has, uh, is, you know, keeps people motivated and keeps people going. Um, as for values, I, I, I do not think we are separating from European values. Uh, we uh, remain committed to the rules-based system, to democracy, uh, to human rights, um, uh, to the equalities and liberties that define all European countries. And I expect us to continue to work closely uh, with our neighbours after we leave the European Union. <coughs> And I think it's, it's um, worth noting that since the vote, there have been uh, three big policy decisions where 
you know, people might have thought outside or on the way out, the UK might have chosen Uncle Sam over un Uncle Jean-Claude. <laughs> and in all three cases, we've lined up very solidly uh, on the European side of the Atlantic. So with um, those being climate, climate change, uh, I think, yeah. um, Iran and the location of embassies to the state of Israel. It's funny how passions go through the Foreign Office and foreign policy. Uh, John Kerr, who's just left, remember talking about the time after the Berlin Wall came down and how diplomats felt really excited. He wasn't in a triumphalist way, but of just really feeling that they were standing for something about British values, European values, you know, that was on the, the upswing, if you like. And I remember early in the Iraq days, being on a plane to Iraq and Iran before it all started to go wrong. And the, and the diplomats there really excited uh, in a way you could now mock in retrospect, but say, look, we're, we're there to do something. I asked at the time what had happened to all their colleagues in neat suits on the Eurostar going after Brussels, and they thought that was all much less exciting than being with a, a flak jacket on the, on, the, on the planes to Baghdad. But these things come, I mean, they come with a, you know, a lot of commitment, and even if, um, you know, in retrospect, um, people feel more doubtful about some of them, um, we shouldn't um, write off the possibility that, you know, New, new strain of con conviction comes through. We're just in a bit of a yeah. no, rain just, shadow at the moment. Yeah, I'm just a quick point on, on both of those. I mean, I, I think that you know, if I were a passionate Brexiter, I would be a bit worried that the almost none of the senior civil servants charged with this, uh, with the possible exception of Simon, uh, believe in it. Um, you know, so that they are. I mean, I, I remember you know meeting a one of the the team working on this and just sort of saying jokingly, you know, are you enjoying your job? And he said, not really, no. You know, I, don't, I think there's not much um, of a kind of, uh, it, it's difficult to, to believe that they can make the best job of it if they don't really believe in it. But they may, they, may be, they may be right on that. But on the values front, I mean, I think it's quite an interesting thing. I mean, potentially, in a slightly dark way, an opportunity for Britain, because I actually think that there's a huge values division opening within the European Union. Mm. Uh, you can see it with Hungary, you can see it with Poland, you can yeah. now see it with Italy. I think in a couple of months you're going to have horrifying headlines all over Europe about deportations of migrants from Italy. That group of sort of populist uh, far right, if I can use that term, uh, emerge is growing. Uh, Hungary, Poland, Slovenia actually, they had an election on yesterday where another of them came in. They are a block now in the EU, and I think that means that the, when the French and the Germans look around, they're actually going to see that Britain has more in common with them on these fundamental values questions than half the people around the European Council table. Uh, how that plays out, I don't quite know, but I think that potentially it's an opportunity for the UK to say, look, uh, we may not be formally in the club, but we are closer to you on, on these re very fundamental, in fact, arguably defining issues uh, for our age. So perhaps it would be a good idea to work with us. Even if we're deporting foreigners ourselves while we say it? If, even if we're deporting foreigners ourselves while we say it? Which is sure, as they are, as, as, as the French are, as the Germans yeah. are. But, but I think there will be an extra roughness to the Salvini no, style, no, Orban style politics. Just, Simon, just on this, the beliefs of, of the civil service, does the tone now taken increasingly regularly, either by politicians when they uh, attack the civil service, or even by some of your former colleagues, it seems daily in the press, does that disturb you in any way? Do you, does, it, does it worry you? Um, 
I believe in the civil service. I believe in the public service ethos in this country. And so, yeah, I monitor this closely. Uh, the intervention of retired colleagues is, uh, is a, sometimes a surprise because I think the compact continues uh, throughout our uh, retirement, uh, but that I understand is a personal view. As Chris Morris from the BBC, it's something um, Gideon's alluded to a little bit already, but I wonder if you could expand on it. Um, we're talking about the Foreign Office after Brexit, but it strikes me that so much depends on whether what's happening in Washington at the moment is a, a four or perhaps eight-year spasm, if you can use that word, after which perhaps things get revert to a little bit as they were before, or whether this is the beginning of a profoundly different American relationship with the rest of the world. Until we know that, it seems to me it's hard to, how you, to know how you position the Foreign Office. And just a question, slightly different question for Simon. Um, I'm just interested in... in how you would foresee uh, things like the Foreign Affairs Council in the future? It, it, would the recommendation from the for, Foreign Office be whenever the invitation is, do you want to have an observer in the room? Let's get in there. Let's still be in, the, in there. If we don't have a vote anymore, we should be in the room observing. Or is it more we need to step back because we're leaving and let them get on with it? Can we just take one more from this side and then we've got a final two over there which we'll take afterwards and hopefully fit everyone in? Yeah, hi, um, Trevor Kalis. I'm a former diplomat. Um, and maybe unfair to ask this of Simon, but um, given that Brexit has been so um, politicising and divisive, is it more difficult than it was before to speak truth to power when it comes to advising ministers on certain policies? Um, uh, first on Chris, uh, Chris and the uh, Foreign Affairs Council. I mean, this is all actively being uh, discussed now um, with uh, the um, uh, Article 50 Task Force in, uh, in Brussels. Um, and we are keen to maintain contact. And how we maintain contact, whether it's before meetings, in the margins of meetings, is, is something that uh, we are actively discussing. But we expect them to be interested in us and us to be interested in them, Eve, on all the full range of foreign policy issues. Uh, especially where we're acting together uh, for, uh, in third countries, even after we leave. Um, and talking truth to power, I think um, uh, it's always been quite difficult, uh, but <laughs> I think the key always is, is done in private. You know, it's, um, doing it via Twitter I, you know, just, just, just makes the tweeter feel better, I think. Um, but it's, it is an essential part of our function, uh, but I think can only be done in private. You know, it's, uh, there, there are reasons why civil servants are not public figures, and I think it protects our ability to perform that function. Can I just take the last two questions, mm -hmm. and you'll have a chance to round off. So, gentlemen, sitting there, gentlemen. Thank you, Ben Alexander. Going back to the original panel discussion, it felt to me like it was painting a picture, I understand the limitations that we don't know what's happening in Brexit, but painting a picture of a quite reactive foreign policy. But notwithstanding the limitations we've discussed about global Britain, I think it's possible to infer, and I think we heard behind me actually, a political sort of desire for a more projectionist and proactive foreign policy after Brexit. <coughs> Is that something that's sensible for Britain to aspire to? And, and, and if that's the case, can you think of any sort of areas of foreign policy where Britain is in a position or to actually establish a niche or provide a lead 
on the global field. And finally, Ms. Matthew. Thank you very much, uh, Matthew Allhouse from MNEX News Agency. Um, so Simon, I wondered if I could ask you about one of the, the immediate challenges you're facing on, on Brexit, which is on sanctions. Um, as I understand it, you've, you've got around a thousand files in the, in the EU uh, in, in force against various actors and, and people around the world that you need to get into, into UK law. Can I ask how's that going and why is that such a difficult task? What are the, what are the obstacles in, in, in converting those? <coughs> Well, the sanctions bill is in the House. Um, uh, the sanctions provisions, I think, have been uh, pretty much um, uh, agreed, uh, but it's a bill that also includes financial regulation, and that is proving uh, much more uh, challenging with the overseas territories and the Crown dependencies. So that is uh, where I think the main difficulty is. But as a technical bill to make sure that we can have continuity in sanctions regimes, I think it has been... Um, pretty good. Uh, I also note that a lot of the EU's sanctions capability is British lawyers. And so what the EU is going to do is also quite interesting as uh, they look at uh, 2017, uh, sorry, 19. Um, and uh, uh, looking at uh, our ambition, I mean, I, you know, however we phrase it, uh, we are not uh, a power in the same way as the United States and China. So, you know, looking at the world and deciding where we're going to throw our weight about, it doesn't seem to me a particularly productive way of looking at our future. But I think we, you know, we can choose and we can have effect. And I know that you know, Scandinavia is characterized by choosing subjects where they, they, they invest deep and they uh, make a very big difference. So it is possible for countries which are not the United States and uh, China to, to, uh, to make a difference, and a positive difference. And we are involved in nearly all the big dossiers. Um, you know, so when we're dealing as an international community with Libya or Yemen or Iran or the Middle East peace process or the Rohingya, uh, the United Kingdom is there. We're not in everything anymore. Well, it's quite interesting that Ukraine has been largely handled without the United Kingdom in the last several years. But we're, we're there, and I think by placing our efforts, uh, we can make a difference. Last word to you two. All right, let me take two quick points, one on Trump, one on the relations between ministers and civil service. On Trump, I would assume, I, I think he's had a very good chance of a second term. Uh, depending on lawsuits and so on. Um, but even if he were to go um, and some of the uh, trappings like Twitter and so on with him, you know, White House by Twitter, uh, to go with him, um, I, I would assume that the politics he stands for you know, remain. He says something about the United States. How much of the new normal that he's managed to create last, I don't know, uh, for example, employing your own family, not releasing your uh, tax returns, asserting that the law doesn't apply while you're... Uh, president in terms of being charged or so, or so on. But, um, no, I, I, I just seem, but you're asking about the foreign policy and the bit that really is up for grabs though is, is just what we're discussing of whether he has permanently changed America's trade policy in particular and its uh, willingness to act <coughs> abroad. Um, and, and I would think um, 
you know, as I said, he stands for something that is that is quite popular. Uh, on the relations between ministers and civil servants, we hear a lot from both sides, obviously, here. And, you know, the two groups of people immensely dedicated to public service who've gone into it, you know, for that reason. Um, it seems to me things are more strained, perhaps, than they were in the past, partly because of the pressure on politics itself. You know, the parties not knowing how long they're there, uh, ministers not knowing how long they'll be in there the job, rushing in, trying to get their three priorities, but it may be ten, uh, done. And, and in all this kind of uh, atmosphere, it just puts extra pressure on a relationship and takes away some of that space, private space, to negotiate these things that Simon was talking about. But you know, it's, it's not a crisis, but you can, the strain affects everyone involved in it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, just to pick up on um, Chris's point, I mean, I do think that the, the Trump election... Uh, is changing the world so fast uh, that it's redefining what what Brexit means as sort of as we're going, and it was interesting that as it when when the two events happened initially they were very much grouped together, including by Trump uh, and people like Steve, I think Steve Bannon said he the moment he knew they would win was when Britain voted for Brexit, but I think that as time has passed, thankfully from a British point of view, it's become clear there are big distinctions certainly in the way that these two populist revolts have been interpreted by, you know, I, I suppose it's as if Nigel Farage uh, were, were, were in number 10 rather than Theresa May. You know, the, the, the populist is in charge in the, in the United States and it seems he's just getting into his stride. So in some sense, this debate about, I think we're slightly whistling in the dark when we say, well, you know, maybe it'll only be four years and, you know, he's only done a year, a year and three months. He's done a lot already. And it seemed, and I think in the first year, there was this sort of comforting sense that maybe the adults had taken over, McMaster was there, and, and so on. Tillerson seemed experienced. But now um, those guys have gone. You've got John Bolton as National Security Council advisor. You've got a Bannonite trade policy, even if Bannon himself is not there. Um, and that, I think, fundamentally changes the context in which the Brexiters thought they were Brexiting into the, the world they thought they were entering doesn't exist anymore. And it's changing very, very rapidly. And I think it could, you know, this could just be the beginning. I, I mean, I mentioned the rise of the sort of populist far right in Europe. There are close connections between them and the, the Trump White House. We saw that just today with the American ambassador in Germany saying that he wanted to you know, build ties with these guys. Steve Bannon was in, in Rome on the, the night of the Italian election um, and uh, indeed has said that Viktor Orban is the most important figure in Europe. So, and his, his way of thinking is still there even if he himself mm. is gone. So it's, I'd love to be able to say, and, and therefore, I, I don't think we, we, we can say that yet, but um, it, it, it means that the task of Brexit, which was monumental anyway, is now even harder to assume because the second anchor of British foreign policy has also slipped loose. Um, and uh, so it becomes, yeah, very tricky. Um, nice job for Simon to have at the moment. Interesting times. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I'm afraid time has caught up with us. Uh, before I end, let me just draw your attention to another event here at the Institute for Government on the 12th of July, when Matthew Rycroft is going to be here talking about uh, development policy after Brexit. But now it just remains to thank Gideon, to thank Bromley, and particularly to thank Simon for taking part in what I thought was an absolutely fascinating discussion. Thank you all. Thank you.